0: Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. Today, we are going to be talking about my favorite team, the Sacramento Kings, finally having a season that is worth rooting for. So, of course, I was not going to pass up the opportunity to talk about them at length. I'm here today with Nathan Smith. And Nathan, how are you?
1: I'm doing well, Nick. Uh, Thanks for having me once again. It's good to be here uh, talking about your team for once.
0: Absolutely. And let's start that conversation with the overview of the offseason, and the most important part of the offseason for the Kings was obviously drafting Marvin Bagley III with the second overall pick, and I wanted to start on really the only note for the Kings this season that's a little bit of a downer. I had Luka Doncic as the clear number one choice going into this draft, and the Kings have had a huge hole at small forward this season that would have been quite adequately filled by Luka Doncic. And the problem on that front is just that it's really difficult to come to terms with the fact that the Kings had this obvious opportunity to get Luka and didn't. On the other hand, I liked Marvin Bagley coming into the draft. I would have had him probably fourth or fifth on my board. I believe if we go back to the draft rankings from last year, I probably would have had him right around that fourth or fifth range just off the top of my head. And if the Kings had taken Michael Porter Jr. with the second overall pick, as there was scuttlebutt they were considering doing, I would have been really upset. But Marvin Bagley is a solid player with a really high ceiling who's looked really good in spurts this season, especially when he's gotten longer run out there on the court. But this season would have been so much more fun if the Kings had managed to get Luka, which they had a clear opportunity to do with that number two overall pick. So on the one hand, I like Bagley's game coming in. He's been really impressive, as honestly, I think all the top five players in the 2018 draft have shown spurts of really impressive play, but Luca looks like the clear best choice at this point in his career, and so it's really difficult to reconcile the fact that the Kings had a clear need at his position and didn't take him anyway.
1: For me, Luca Doncic was also the clear-cut number one pick, I think. The Kings really did miss an opportunity there. You pointed out how the biggest hole they have right now is at small forward. Luka Doncic could obviously play that and uh, still take on ball handling roles, both with and without uh, Fox and Bogdanovich and the others in the lineup. The thing about Marvin Bagley, when you look at his uh, advanced numbers, um, the percentile in which he ranks among uh, players at his position, he doesn't grade out very favorably when it comes to shooting, Um, whether that's too... Two point attempts or three point attempts or even free throws, but the numbers aren't things we haven't seen from a rookie before. And I think the encouraging thing is when shooting's a problem, that can always be improved. Um, a lot of times, rather easily in comparison to other things. So I think moving forward, that should be uh, the number one thing that Bagley's looking to improve as well. Um, from the team perspective, as really finding the best lineup for him to succeed in. Um, a guy that can't really space the floor playing a alongside uh, Willie cauley isn't really going to be the best fit. And I think that's part of the reason why you've seen the Kings go with a guy like Bielitsa at the four, um, at least in the starting unit.
0: I think Bagley kind of has an Amari Stoudemire-esque ceiling. And I think that long-term, him and De'Aaron Fox and Buddy Hield running the fast break, as we've seen this season, but I think even going forward, will be an incredibly effective trio especially if Bagley can develop that jump shot just a little bit. The problem with that is just that I don't think anyone expected De'Aaron Fox to be a star as quickly as he has been in his second season and even if the Kings had seen incredible things from him in practice were really high on him coming out of summer league which would have been reasonable given how he absolutely destroyed summer league in the one game that he played. I mean you don't pass up on the kind of talent that Luka Doncic is at number two if you're a team like the Kings that hasn't made the playoffs for the longest streak in the NBA at this point. But because this has been such a positive Kings season, I wanted to get sort of the one negative point out of the way before we move on to some of the more positive stuff. And with the offseason overview, the other sort of main thing with their offseason, Nemanja Bielica and Yogi Ferrell were both signed to contracts with other teams opted out of those contracts and decided to remain in Sacramento. Bielica, because the contract that he signed was a shorter term deal, the Kings gave him a longer term three year deal, and he opted for that. And I wanted to start with Bielica because his addition to the starting lineup has been crucial to the Kings success so far. His box score numbers don't particularly stand out 10 points a game, six rebounds a game two assists per game. But he's shooting 43% from deep. And that's actually a bit of a come down from his earlier season where for most of the first two months, he was shooting around 50% from deep. And as you talked about with the spacing with Willie cauley and Marvin Bagley, or lack thereof, and Buddy Hield obviously being an incredible floor spacer, De'Aaron Fox really developing his jump shot. Having that extra touch from the power forward spot has been huge for helping the Kings pace and space offense this year. And it's hard to talk enough, honestly, about the kind of difference that Bielica has made to this team after being someone that really sort of went unheralded throughout the free agency process, other than the minor headline when he actually opted out of that deal.
1: Yeah, the process of him coming to Sacramento was was one of the more, um, certainly one of the more underrated things that, th- or, well, at least from a coverage standpoint, to happen in the NBA offseason. I thought he would have fit greatly um, with the Sixers, but obviously, Vlade... And companies stepped in with more money, and when you look at his impact this season, um, just in terms of five-man lineups, as far as ones that um, that qualify among um, that qualify to be among the league leaders, Bealita is in four out of those five best lineups for the Kings, including uh, one that they played with in 179 possessions. That's actually plus 25.4 points, um, and that's basically the starters, but with um, Justin Jackson instead of Iman Shumpert. So I I like what he's done on the offensive end, being able to stretch the floor a little bit. Uh, a nice compliment to Willie Cauley-Stein um, in the modern-day NBA, at least. Certainly might have been a little bit undersized or a tweener a few years back, but that just goes to show you why he fits um, today's game and what the Kings are doing even more. Um, when it comes to Farrell, I was actually surprised. Did you see him, I guess, play, playing so much and, and kind of uh, overtaking Frank Mason as far as uh, the Kings' backup point guard, or at least splitting time?
0: I'm glad you mentioned that. I am incredibly happy that Yogi Ferrell has taken the backup point guard minutes from Frank Mason, and I'm not all that surprised. I have really been a fan of Yogi Ferrell since he was sort of on the fringes of the NBA roster with the Brooklyn Nets, and then he had a good couple of years in Dallas. We'll talk more about Frank Mason later, but the thing about Yogi is that he knows who he is as an NBA player. He's, I think, a Solid backup for De'Aaron Fox in that Yogi is also an incredibly fast player who's really good at getting the team out on the break. And having that kind of player as the backup for your star point guard is, I think, really helpful just because it allows you to run a similar kind of offense, even when your lead ball handler is off the floor. Yogi can shoot a little bit, which let's just put it mildly and say we haven't exactly seen that from Frank Mason this year. So very happy with Yogi Farrell earning those backup point guard minutes.
1: Yeah, he's he's been impressive this year to me. Um, I thought Bielitza was obviously the, the key signing, but Farrell's been kind of an added bonus for you guys.
0: All right, let's move from the offseason into the actual season itself. As of the time of this recording, which was shortly after the Kings pretty disappointing loss to the Clippers, they are 25 and 25 through 50 games. They've already beaten their over-under for the year, which most places had at about 23 wins. And I wanted to start talking about the big man rotation. And sort of similarly to how we did the Luka Doncic-Marvin Bagley debate right off the top, I want to get the one not exactly positive thing out of the way first with Willie Cauley-Stein. And he's a very difficult player to talk about, just in the sense that I think he's clearly gotten better this year over last year. I think he's made minor improvements between each of his years, other than his rookie year to his sophomore year was a bit rough, but sophomore year to his third year was a pretty decent jump, and this year he's been playing much better than he was last year. The problem with Willie Hollystein is that he has all the tools to be the next DeAndre Jordan, the next Clint Capella, and he's just never put the effort in. I mean, his rebounding rate is way up, and his defensive lapses have gotten better from last year, but he's still allowing opponents to shoot 66.4% when guarded by him, less than six feet away from the rim. Not only is that significantly worse than league average, period, that is way worse than league average for a center, and certainly way worse than you would hope for for a guy like Cauley Stein, who's got the length and might have the best athletic tools of any center in the league. I still remember Kevin O'Connor's piece about Willie Cauley-Stein leading up to his draft year, where Willie was beating most of the point guards and wings in that draft in terms of lateral quickness, in terms of sprint speed up and down the floor. He has all the athletic tools to be a defensive player of the year. And whether it's effort or just falling asleep on the defensive end, he's never put it together. So Even though he's gotten better and better every year, I don't think he's ever going to be more than like a top 25 starting center in the league. And the kind of money he's going to get paid this offseason, I just don't think it's worth it for Sacramento to be on the hook for that contract.
1: I I agree with that take. I think Willie Cauley-Stein's nice just kind of for, for what he is, as like you kind of alluded to, just, you know, a league average or possibly slightly under starting center. Um, long-term, I don't think that he's somebody that the Kings should be uh, looking to extend. Certainly, if, if he's coveted by a team in the trade market, I, I wouldn't shy away from trading him. I wouldn't necessarily be actively shopping him, but he would just be kind of a placeholder in my eyes moving forward. Um, probably ultimately looking to get Bagley some minutes as a small ball five, but probably a starting another starting center will need to be brought in down the road.
0: We'll certainly spend more time talking about the Kings trade possibilities later on in the podcast, but I definitely agree with you that it's worth at least listening to offers on Willie, especially since I don't see any way that the Kings are going to want to pay his next contract unless everybody else on the league is sort of as down on him as the most pessimistic of Kings fans. But on a more positive note, let's move on to talking about Harry Giles, who's One of the best stories in the league this year, just in the sense that he had all those devastating knee injuries after being pretty clearly the number one player in his high school class. He's looked really good passing-wise. His passing is superb for any kind of player, but especially for someone you're going to have throwing passes around from the pivot. I mean, having a post-up player who can actually pass out of the post rather than only score is incredibly valuable. And he's clearly got the passing touch. His defensive instincts already look way better than Willie Cauley-Stein's ever have. The problem with Giles is he still makes a ton of mistakes. And on the one hand, yeah, he's a 20-year-old big man. You kind of expect that. On the other hand, his foul rate is still way too high. He takes a lot of bad shots. His true shooting percentage is under 50, which is not what you want out of your big man. And he has the highest turnover rate on the team as of before this game against the Clippers. I don't think that's going to change after this game. I think he can be the future of the center position in Sacramento, assuming that the Kings look at Marvin Bagley as primarily a power forward. He's definitely got the right rim protecting instincts that you want out of your center. He's a little bit small for it, but he's looked a lot springier this year than he ever did at Duke, and hopefully he can keep that going. But even though there have been a lot of mistakes with Harry Giles, I'm still pretty high on his upside.
1: I'm still pretty high on Harry Giles as well. He's somebody that I I really liked, uh, coming out of high school and uh, coming out of, out of college as well after his one season at Duke. Um, when you look at him and Bagley, I actually find myself quite often liking uh, some of the things that Giles does a lot more than Bagley. And while they're both young, and obviously a lot of that will change, I am excited by a couple of things you alluded to. Um, his rim protection, not too bad, especially for being undersized. And then his ability to pass out of the post. Um, as well as just being, looking just kind of a, a little more refined at this point, um, just being a year ahead of Marvin Bagley. He's somebody that I've been very um, pleased to see Dave Yeager play, um, at least fairly consistency. It seems like every, he kind of has an every other game thing going, but he, he still gets minutes, um, even if it's just 14, 15, 16 um, nightly. So I'm encouraged by what he's offered so far. I'm also uh, interested to see some more of the uh, – Giles Bagley front court combo moving forward. Um, Do you have any thoughts about that?
0: That Giles Bagley front court combo is probably going to set the league record for foul rate among starting front court if they (laughs) try and do that down the stretch of this season. But man, I mean, the thing about Bagley is that he's made a lot of defensive mistakes, but the effort is clearly there, and I think that's a lot more visible on the glass than it is on the defensive end. But Bagley's got a ridiculous second jump. Like, the ball goes up, and he's already back up off the ground before anybody else has even landed. And that's the kind of thing that if you've got Giles and Bagley as a front court, you're going to be a little bit small, but you're going to be really fast. You're going to have excellent passing from Giles, and I'd say surprisingly average passing from Marvin Bagley. You know, he's had some moments where he's thrown some really good looks cross-court out of the post. Other times where he just tosses the ball away. But that's sort of a problem that every young team and every young big man has. So I'm excited to see that look. I think the Kings can probably put up 130 and give up 135 if they run that. But there's no reason not to give those guys more experience together in my mind.
1: Yeah, why not moving forward? Might as well.
0: Let's move on to the wings and guards, and we have to start with the incredible breakout seasons for the Kings starting backcourt of De'Aaron Fox and Buddy Heald. Starting with Fox, I think his jump from his rookie season to his sophomore season is a little bit overblown, just in the sense that he was actually pretty solid in the second half of last season after the Kings got George Hill out of town. He was just god-awful the first couple of months of the season. He couldn't make anything. He was throwing the ball off his foot, making stupid fouls, getting lost on defense. And I think his rookie numbers look a lot worse overall, just because he sort of balanced out his miserable first half of the season with an okay, not, you know, brilliant, but a decent second half of the year. And then this year, he's just taken like three steps forward, at least, I mean, His jump shot is looking to be slightly above league average, which I never would have expected that after last year's shooting performance. And he's gotten a lot better about using his speed to his advantage. Last year, he would kind of just sprint up the court every time he had the ball, you know, not really look for anybody in transition, just try and get from one end to the other as quickly as possible. This year, he's gotten a lot better with his hesitation dribbles. He's gotten a lot better with mixing up speeds and when he does turn on the afterburners, man, he just beats entire teams up the floor by himself. It's incredibly fun to watch.
1: Yeah, that, that's certainly this year has been the number one thing I've enjoyed about watching, uh, Sacramento play, uh, De'Aaron, De'Aaron Fox, like you said, has certainly figured out, um, even more so how to use his speed to his advantage. One thing that I thought was really interesting and popped off the page to me was, um, among guards, he is in the 88th percentile in terms of, uh, how many shots he takes at the rim, and that's uh, it's nearly forty-three percent. Um, that's really encouraging when you've got your young guard who, sure, shooting's not his strength, um, is improving on it. As you mentioned, being able to um, to drive to the rim and uh, just kind of collapse the defense—that's exactly what you need from from De'Aaron Fox. So, all I want to see from him is just more of the same going forward. I was a, a little bit disappointed in his season last year, but. Looking back on it, I, I don't know if I evaluated him um, as fairly as I should have, and I've been very, very impressed with what he's done in his sophomore season.
0: And this is the obvious point to make, but it has to be made anyway, because it's the clear turning point of why the Kings are so much better this year than last year. Last year, they were dead last in the NBA in pace, which is just stupid when you have De'Aaron Fox as your starting point guard. This year, they've taken Kosakupas mostly out of the rotation, especially the last couple of weeks. Zach Randolph has yet to play at all this year after being a huge black hole and someone who slowed down the game a lot for the Kings when he was in the game last year. Credit to Randolph for keeping his veteran presence still solid and you know being someone who's been around this team despite the fact that they basically told him, yeah, you're not going to play at all this year. So kudos to him for not making a bigger fuss out of that, but it has been really helpful to the Kings. Going back to Fox, though, you mentioned his ability to score at the rim. Last year, he was not all that effective near the basket. And the biggest change from last year to this year on that front, I think, has just been he's gotten so much better at drawing fouls. He can get to the basket pretty easily. And the difference from this year to last year, I think, is he's still really skinny. But last year, he looked almost anemic at times. and He would just get shoved out of the paint anytime he went in there. And even though he's still a little skinny, I might want to see him put on a few more pounds he's looked a lot better this year just in terms of actually holding his own when he's driving to the basket and not letting the contact completely throw him off, being able to draw fouls at a decent rate. Whereas last year, he was just sort of trying to beat everybody to the rim. And if there was someone contesting when he got there, it was not going to be a good look for him.
1: Yeah, I think uh, his offensive growth has been an impressive to watch this year. And I think you hit, hit it on the head with the, the biggest thing there. Um, the pace was just inexcusable last year. The fact that they're playing so much faster this year is really uh, enabling Fox to kind of be himself and play to his strengths. So definitely made the right decision there. And that's the type of offense you need to play with uh, Fox moving forward is a, a fast paced one.
0: Someone else who's clearly benefited from the more up tempo offense, even though he's not exactly the player who you think about first when you think about end to end speed. Buddy Heald has made a huge jump from last year to this year, He's over 20 points a game. He's one of the best three-point shooters in the league. Made total sense. He's been invited to the All-Star Game contest. Shooting 46% from deep and 55% in January, which is beyond ridiculous. And the thing about Buddy Heald is he has improved his dribble from the point where I got scared every time he had the ball in his hands and was trying to create to the point where he's at least decent with the ball in his hands trying to get to the rim. And that's made such a huge difference because Instead of teams just running him off the three-point line every single time like they did for the first couple years of his career, now they at least have to pay attention to him when he's got the ball in his hands, and it's made his whole offensive game open up so much more. The other thing is he's really got the J.J. Redick thing down, just the running every single second of the possession on offense. There were times today in this Clippers game that we were both watching where Buddy was the only person on the Kings who didn't have the ball in his hands that was moving off the ball. I wrote an article about Buddy Heald earlier this season, and at that point around mid-December, he was leading the league in numbers of miles run per game on average. He is just always moving, and that's helped him go from abysmal on defense to just a normal below-average defender, and that's really all he needs to be. And for Buddy, I've been saying basically since the Kings took him that I think his best role would be as a sixth man, and I've been very happy to be proven wrong this year because. A lot of the weaknesses in his game that made it difficult for me to see him as a starter, he's made leaps and bounds on improving this year. Even if he's not good or even average in those areas, namely defense and scoring near the basket, he's at least good enough that I think he's clearly proven himself to be a key piece, if not the second most important piece of this Kings team going forward.
1: I actually previously thought that he might be best suited to play a six-man role as well. And I, I also have been glad to be uh, proven wrong, I guess, this year. You mentioned the 46% from three that he's shooting. Very impressive, of course. The handle, as you mentioned as well, has improved. I think he, you phrased it perfectly. He, it almost was, you'd almost cringe or, or be a little bit scared when he did try to create for himself in the past, but he's tightened it up a little bit. If I had one, one thing to pick with his, uh, with his game, I'd, it would be shot distribution just a little bit. While the league has gravitated, obviously, towards the three ball and shots at the rim, Buddy, of course, has maintained um, taking a high percentage of his shots from from deep. But in each of his uh, four seasons, in comparison to league average at his position, he has had fewer attempts at the rim in each year than he did the previous one. Now, while it's not like at an alarming rate by any means, I guess that would just be one area he might be able to open up his game as as time goes on, Um, just being able to create more and um, off the dribble at least and, and get to the lane. If he's going to take uh, twos, I'd rather rather see them at the rim than see a uh, high concentration of mid-range ones despite the efficiency there.
0: The thing with Buddy, I think, is sort of similar to one of the best parts of Darren Fox's improvement this year. If Buddy could just get to the line more, he doesn't even have to take as many shots near the basket just to say, all right, I'm taking shots near the rim because those are good shots. If he can just find a way to draw more fouls, he's shooting about – two free throws a game, but he's a career 86% shooter from the stripe. So if he can even up those free throw attempts to like three a game or even four a game, I think that'll make a huge difference to his offensive contributions. But let's move on to talking about the backup point guard spot. We talked about Yogi Ferrell's role in that, earning the minutes from Frank Mason. And I want to circle back to that. This might be my hottest Kings take of all. So I want to sort of feel this out with you before I proceed with this. (laughs) I think Frank Mason's NBA career was severely damaged by winning the Naismith Award in his last year in college, because he plays like someone who just thinks he's a lot better than he is. He drives to the rim a ton and just sort of throws it up. He's not going to get those shots to go in when you're a 5'11 maybe point guard driving into the trees near the rim in the NBA. He takes a lot of contested threes that he really shouldn't take. He's shooting 19% from deep this season. And man, coming into the draft, I thought if Frank Mason just knows who he is and plays as a solid backup point guard type of player, moves the ball, runs the offense, but doesn't look to take his own shot too much, I thought he would have a decade plus career in the NBA. But I think winning that Naismith award has made him think that he's a lot better of a player than he is, especially at the NBA level. And it just leads to him trying to make too many superstar plays that he's just not good enough to make at the NBA level he was good enough to make them in college when he was a 23 year old senior going up against teenagers, but that's not the case in the NBA.
1: Yeah. Being, being a, uh, a Missouri tiger fan, I'm, I'm always open to um, talking down about former Kansas Jayhawks. So <laughs> I'm here, for, I, I'm I'm here for it. Um, we can just end the podcast right there and just go straight to um, ragging on Frank Mason. That would, that would just be fantastic with me.
0: Well, there's more positive King stuff to talk about. So I want to get that out there, but yeah, I mean, he has all of the tools that you would need to be a solid long-term backup point guard in the NBA, and maybe it'll take another team picking him up off the scrap heap for him to figure that out, but he just has not gotten that point across in Sacramento.
1: Yeah, th- on a serious note, I do think that um, not not a role change, but embracing his role is going to be the key for him moving forward. Um, he does kind of kind of have that, I don't know, J.R. Smith syndrome, or you could probably think of a better example. But in terms of uh, just maybe jacking up too many shots, being a little trigger happy. So moving forward, it might be another team that he finds a better home with. But if he's going to get more playing time for Sacramento, I think he's got to have better shot selection, certainly, as you alluded to.
0: And the last wing guard player I wanted to talk about, Justin Jackson. I've never been a particularly big fan of his. I just didn't see any skill that he was good enough at to cement himself as an NBA player. I've been pleasantly surprised over the past month or so at how much better he's looked. He's finally starting to get more consistent with his three-point shot. He's up to 36% after being in the low 30s for all of last year and most of this year. And if he can be a 37, 38% three-point shooter get a little bit smarter on the defensive end. I think he could be a really solid seventh or eighth man for a while. I think the problem is just that, and the Kings luckily have figured this out after playing him way too many games as a starter last year, but I don't think he's ever going to be more than like a seventh, eighth man. Really the swing skill for him is just if he can continue to keep that three-point percentage up in the high 30s, maybe even the low 40s, he's got a long career for himself. If he can't do that, I just don't know what else he does well enough to stick around in the NBA.
1: So I actually have a question for you when it comes to Justin Jackson. Um, I, I definitely agree with with your assessment that he's you know the seventh eighth man type of guy. Um, as far as just um, just this year, um, in regards to uh, how he how we would fit as as an everyday starter, or an every game starter, I, I can't help but keep noticing that the King's best lineup with looks like their fourth most possessions that has a. A twenty-five point um, point differential is um, basically the starters with Jackson over Shumpert. So Fox, Heald, Jackson, Bealitsa, and Collie Stein wouldn't Jackson, at least in theory, be kind of that? What is he? Six seven six eight wing guy that you would kind of want to slot in there as your starting small forward, even if he didn't finish games. Wouldn't he make a little more sense than than Shumpert?
0: Man, that's a tough call. Just because, and we didn't talk about this earlier, so I do want to make sure to mention it. The impact that Iman Schumpert has had on the chemistry of this team and the optimism of this team has just been night and day. I mean, you talk about losing cultures all the time, and I'm not sure I fully buy into that as much as some people do, but this season Iman Schumpert has really done an excellent job of convincing me of the importance of that kind of veteran guy because Man, all the King's Young players seem to love him. He always seems to have a smile on his face, even when he's not playing a great game. I think the Justin Jackson numbers look a lot better just because the last month or so, they've been trending in opposite directions. Shumpert has just been ice cold for the last month or so, and Jackson has started to hit his three-pointers, which makes him a more consistent option. But I think Shumpert's definitely a better defender at this point in his career. Jackson's still a bit skinny, gets pushed around a bit. I don't know. I mean, it's difficult just because neither of them, I think, is a starting caliber small forward, and I think that's the Kings' biggest issue, and hopefully one that we're about to address when we talk about potential trades for them. But it makes sense to me that they're playing slightly better, especially recently with Justin Jackson in the lineup, but I don't want to cut Iman Shumpert out of the rotation entirely just because he's made such an impact off the floor.
1: Right, right. Um, I guess I, I, I might have been kind of uh, underrating the, the the impact with all the little things and all the non box score things that Iman Schumper does. Um, these numbers are are fairly interesting though, especially when you look at the sharp difference in things like a free throw rate, um, points per possession. They actually rank in the 96th percentile, only allowing ninety four point seven points uh, per hundred possessions when um, with that aforementioned Jackson lineup. But but I don't know. You know, certainly you need a guy like Jackson to con- kind of continue to grow into his own skin. Um, Shumpert's been there. He's the veteran. So I guess I I can't really knock it or anything. It was just something I was curious about looking at some of these numbers here. All right, Nick. So I also wanted to ask you about an article you recently came out with in regards to the Kings and the trade market. Um, It's called the the Kings have cornered the trade market. And of course, you can find that over on hashtag basketball.com or uh, the link you can find on uh, Nick's Twitter. That's going to be at NBA Johnson. But I wanted to um, just kind of Ask you about that. Have you you hit a couple of the main points? Um, Tell us a little bit about exactly why you think the Kings are going to be in a prime position moving forward when it comes to the, the trade market.
0: So, first of all, thanks for the Twitter plug. Really appreciate that. Second of all, in terms of how the Kings have cornered the market, at the time I wrote the article, they were one of two teams who were under the cap. The Bulls were just barely under at the time I wrote the article. They're now back over the cap after a couple of minor trades. So as the only team with cap space heading into this trade deadline, the Kings have two, I think, primary methods that they should be looking at for changing this team. And really, I think the conclusion there is just that they have this resource that no one else in the NBA has. So it would be really unfortunate if the trade deadline passed and they weren't able to take advantage of that. So the first way that they could do that is just take a salary dump from another team that is trying to shed salary to get under the luxury tax or to shed salary to make another move around the trade deadline. The team that I focused on primarily was the Washington Wizards, just because they are not in the playoff picture at the moment, really. And especially after the John Wall injury, they've actually looked a lot better since (laughs) that John Wall injury, which is interesting. but. Even so, I don't think they're a team that's really going to be in the playoff picture in the East by the end of the year, and they're in the luxury tax. So even though the Wizards owner, Ted Leonsis, recently said that they're not looking to tank, they're looking to try and make the playoffs, that doesn't sound like the kind of person who's willing to make a salary-shedding trade. On the other hand, you really don't want to be in the luxury tax and also out of the playoffs. So the Kings could... Yan Mahimi's contract in return for a pick, that would be one way to take advantage of that cap space. The other potential possibility that I mentioned was to try and swing a trade for Otto Porter, especially given that the Kings' biggest hole by far is at that small forward spot. If the Kings could trade a couple of their expiring contracts, Zach Randolph is a prime candidate for this. Costa Kufos is another person who's on an expiring contract. If the Kings can finagle a trade where they get Otto Porter in return for, say, Justin Jackson, a future second-round pick, and some expiring salaries to make the money match, I think that would be a really good way for the Kings to improve this team, both now and going forward. Yes, Otto Porter is overpaid. I don't think anyone would really disagree with that. On the other hand, when you have this extra cap space like the Kings do... You're kinda okay with overpaying one player, especially since the best players on the Kings are currently on their rookie contracts.
1: So for you, would would a potential auto porter trade is that is that um bring any concerns with you in terms of how he might fit in and affect um affect maybe the role of, of a guy like Buddy Heald or or more specifically Bogdan Bogdanovich, do you think that they would take away from each other in any way?
0: So Buddy, I think he actually helps just because Otto is another really solid three-point shooter out there to sort of give more space to Buddy and De'Aaron to operate. I think Bogdan Bogdanovich is the good point to bring up because he's clearly the player whose minutes would be most affected by this. Honestly, if the Kings ship out Justin Jackson in that kind of trade for Otto Porter, they've already got 20-plus minutes to fill at the small forward spot that they wouldn't have anyone else to fill anyway. So if Down's minutes go down from like 28 a game to like 25 a game, and Justin Jackson's minutes all go to Otto Porter, and maybe you cut back just a little bit on minutes for Bielitsa because Porter is someone else who could potentially play that small ball four position. If you cut Bielitsa down from 24 minutes to 22 minutes, And you get Justin Jackson's minutes out of there, and you get three minutes from Bogdan going from 28 to 25 minutes a game. That's a solid 27, 28 minutes for Otto Porter each game, where he can play a little bit of the three, a little bit of the four, and mostly just be asked to be a three-point shooter in the Kings' running offense. And Porter's not a spectacular athlete, but he's certainly good enough to be able to be really effective in transition. And we've seen that at his best moments playing alongside John Wall as well.
1: So, basically, all we need now is auto-porter to the Kings, and then the Wizards can send Bradley Beal and Trevor Ariza to my Lakers, and the Wizards can tank, and everybody will be happy. Is that what, is that what I'm gathering from you?
0: I think that there is approximately, and maybe I'm slightly overestimating this, but approximately a 0.00001% chance that the Wizards trade Bradley Beal, because he's literally <laughs> the only useful... Well, not useful. That's kind of unfair. But he's the only, I think, proper value contract among that team's top five. I mean, that John Wall contract already looks rough and it's just going to get worse unless he makes a spectacular recovery from that injury. Man, I just don't see any reason why the Wizards would want to trade Bradley Beal at all, especially if the owner has basically come out and said, yeah, we're not tanking, period. Oh,
1: no, I I definitely agree. I'm just kind of living in fantasy land here, you know, just imagining my Lakers with, with all sorts of dream lineups like everybody out there imagines us Lakers fans doing. so.
0: <laughs> well, Laker fans certainly aren't short on optimism. I'll give them that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is true.
0: All right, let's move on to talking about the future outlook for this Kings team. And I want to get started with their playoff chances. And I will cede the floor to you to hear your opinion on this first, just so that mine looks I don't think mine will look biased anyway, but you know, give you the floor. What are your thoughts on the Kings' playoff chances?
1: I actually think they're, they're somewhat decent. Um, the teams that I would be looking at that I in, in terms of um, teams that are right there in that same range as them, that they have a realistic shot of um, either leapfrogging or staying ahead of. New Orleans has struggled so much that it's not out of the question at all for Sacramento to be above them as they currently already are by three games. Um, you've got Dallas and Minnesota right there. Those might be uh, might be kind of in the same boat as far as teams ahead of them. I think the Clippers are a prime target for them in the past. Um, the Clippers have really kind of kind of tailed off after a hot start to the season. They're still twenty eight and twenty two, but moving ahead of that, the Bla- you've got the Blazers, Rockets, and Jazz. You've also got the Lakers. Um, certainly, with all these injuries, the Lakers have. You could, you know, there's there's scenarios in which as much as it pains me to say it, that they might not make the playoffs. I think if the injuries get all squared away, they'll be fine. But I do think the Kings have a somewhat realistic shot of sneaking in there, especially if they can uh, bypass the Clippers. I know that just if you just want to just base things on today that didn't look um, like it was going to happen, but that was just one game. They've got plenty of season left, and I think it's it's certainly a possibility if they had a couple things break their way. And if they were to were to land, you know, someone like an auto porter or something to kind of bolster their shot. I think it's, um, let's go with with 30% chance.
0: That's really interesting because I don't think I have the Kings' playoff chances as high as you do. They've been slightly better than their net rating all season long, which is usually a good indicator for how a team will finish the year. On the other hand, we're 50 games in at this point, so it's really hard not to say what you see is what you get at this point in the season. My best guess for it is that unless the Kings make a major shakeup at the trade deadline, they're probably going to end up in the 38 to 40-ish win range. I think they're going to end up right around 10th in the Western Conference. And on the one hand, that seems a bit pessimistic, just given how they've been above 500 for a lot of the year. On the other hand, they've already beat their win projection for the season, so everything is gravy at this point. So. Even if they end up with a thirty-eight to forty win season, I'm really happy with how this year has gone from the team.
1: Yeah, I think that's well said. Uh, the one thing that does worry me a little bit: um, fourteen and nineteen within the Western Conference. So if they can get that get that up a little bit, then um, certainly they they do have their realistic shot. But um, how many games do you do you think the Kings will win? Of course, you mentioned they already passed their win projection, but I guess not only how many games do you think they'll win, but how many games do you think that that the front office is going to be happy with?
0: Well, those are two very different questions. In terms of how many I think they're going to end up with, I think that 38 to 40 number is pretty much on it. I think they're going to be right around 500 for the season. They're probably going to tail off just a little bit because they have not looked as good in January as they did the first few months of the season. So yeah, something just a little bit under 500 is my best guess. In terms of what the front office is looking for, I think it'll depend on how desperate teams get close to the trade deadline to shed salary. If teams are looking to shed salary, then the Kings can, again, make a move in, I think, one of two directions, which is, you know, burn that cap space for expiring terrible contracts from other teams and use it to pick up some future assets. Because clearly the best years of this particular Kings squad Barring injury, which I hate saying, but Barring injury, the best years of this King squad are ahead of them. So picking up a couple of future picks to fill out the back end of the rotation I don't think is a bad idea. On the other hand, there is the possibility that they could make an auto porter like trade where they're taking a guy who's overpaid but still a really good player, taking him into that cap space. So I think it depends on what's available for the front office. I think they're definitely going to choose pushing for the playoffs over using that cap space to pick up a terrible contract and some future assets. This team has the longest streak of missing the playoffs in the NBA. They don't have their draft pick this upcoming year, which was terrifying to start the season and is now something that I'm pretty much okay with. But clearly the focus for this team is to try and make it into the playoffs. You hear that from the players almost every day. That's clearly a priority for this ownership group, for this front office. So my guess is that they're going to do everything they can to make, a, not a swing for the fences, but looking for a double trade this upcoming trade deadline, mixing a lot of baseball metaphors into this, but there you go. And I think the front office is really going to shoot for that eighth seed, even if maybe they'd be better off by selling that cap space for future assets.
1: Now, remind me, is is that pick, does it belong to Boston?
0: It belongs to Boston unless it's the number one overall pick, which I think we can rule out at this point, barring the absolute worst lottery luck ever, which would be really depressing. But this pick is almost guaranteed to be Boston's at this point in the season.
1: Nice. Nice. Another team that likes to draft um, young young threes and fours from Duke
0: and another team that I'm very happy with getting a worse asset than they thought they were getting. Yes.
1: Oh, tell me about it. Yes. I'm right there with I'm you. I'm sure you are. Um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but yeah, speaking of those, uh, those guys from Duke, um, we, we talked about Bagley and Giles, um, a lot earlier, um, just to wrap up that at least moving forward, do you see them both getting, um, what I guess what both of us would call an appropriate amount of run, um, in terms of playing time?
0: So the Kings have already kind of cut Costa Cufas out of the rotation. He's barely played the past couple of weeks after being a minimal minutes role player to start the season. So I think the Kings are already looking to get their younger big men a little bit more run. I think the question becomes what exactly happens to Willie Cauley-Stein's minutes. If he's someone that the Kings are looking to trade at the deadline for assets because they don't think they want to pay for his next contract, definitely Bagley and Giles get more run. I think that's something the Kings should very heavily consider because even though Willie has looked better this year and he's a lot closer to being a starting center in the league than I think Harry Giles is at this point. Ultimately, if he's not going to be a part of the future of the team, I don't think there's much of a reason to play him major minutes down the stretch. So even if they don't find a willing trade partner for Willie, I think it's worth it to cut his minutes back just a bit to get the young guys a bit more playing time.
1: Yeah. You mentioned earlier how um, you know a hypothetical front court of of Bagley and Giles could very well lead the league in, in fouls. Um, well, I, I certainly don't disagree, but I guess do you think? I guess would you be would you be on the same page with me saying that that's something they should probably still do anyway, and just kind of go through the growing pains and get it out of the way? Um, just just in terms of um, you know you want to increase their playing time and kind of let them work work out the kinks along the way.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the best way to learn, especially in the NBA, is by doing and by playing. And especially if Giles is being told, all right, we're looking to have you be a major contributor down the stretch, as opposed to someone whose minutes are going to fluctuate a lot. I think maybe I don't want to take his aggression away because I think he plays a lot better when he is that aggressive and going for plays, going for blocks, going for steals running to the rim, trying to get boards, pushing people around as best he can as a young big man. I think it's much better to just have him go out there, make those kinds of mistakes, learn from those kinds of mistakes. And if you tell him he's going to have a more consistent role, maybe he does cut back on that aggression just in the sense that he's not going to go all out contest and get a lot of stupid fouls that way. And maybe he dials that back a little bit. I think that would be really helpful for them. And yeah, I mean... Bagley has really struggled on the defensive end this year. That was completely expected coming out of Duke. He's still only 19, got a lot of room to grow and room to learn on that end of the floor in particular. But really, it's going to be a lot better for both of them if they can get that experience in actual NBA minutes as opposed to only on the practice court. So I'm all for it, even if both of them foul out in 15 minutes of every game down the stretch of the season.
1: I like it. I like it. Uh, Certainly moving forward. I would, I would also like to see them get as much playing time as possible. You've got off-season decisions um, coming up with Willie Cauley-Stein, Shumpert, and uh, Costa Cufas. Um, Are we on the same page as well on this one that none of those guys are really going to be long-term pieces moving forward?
0: I'm reluctant to say that Shumpert is not going to be a long-term piece. I think if they can get him on a reasonable contract, he's getting $11 million this year. That's an overpay for him, clearly. But if the Kings can get him a three-year, $15 million, maybe even a three-year, $18 million deal, something in that range, I would be more than happy to have him back. Costa Kufos and Zach Randolph as well as an expiring. I think it's a failure of the front office if the Kings don't turn those expiring contracts into assets at the trade deadline, just because I don't see either of them being a future piece of this team. Randolph clearly isn't, given that he literally hasn't played a single minute this season, so I think it's a failure of the front office if they don't turn those guys into something at the trade deadline as pretty high value expiring contracts. I don't see Kufos coming back next year, even though he's been a great veteran presence, and he's someone who is talked about around the league as someone that pretty much everybody likes. He just doesn't fit with this team. He's not a big man that can run up and down the floor, and that's what the future of this team is. So I don't see him coming back. As for Colley Stein. Man, I think that some other team is going to convince themselves that the Kings have just screwed up his development, and if only Willie could get into our system, he's going to be exactly that DeAndre Jordan, Clint Capella type of player. He's got all the tools. All we need to do is just get his defense right, motivate him a little bit, and he's going to be a star for us. And whatever team convinces themselves to pay Willie the kind of contract that would be commensurate with that evaluation is going to be way too rich of a contract for the Kings to want to pay for especially given the glut of young big men they have. I mean, we haven't even talked about Scala this year, who's been nailed to the bench this year. And I think he's clearly behind the rest of their big men in terms of potential and future. But even so, I mean, he's getting nailed to the bench. Kufos has barely played. Randolph hasn't played all year. They have way too many big men at this point anyway, so paying way too much money for Willie Colley Stein's next contract would, I think, be a huge mistake. So I would like the Kings to at least try to keep him on Chompert around on a reasonable deal. The rest of those expirings, I'm perfectly happy to let them see the door.
1: I like it. Uh, Certainly, a lot to be excited about moving forward for Kings fans. Uh, Nick, is there anything else you want to add before we get out of here?
0: No, I think we're all set. Thank you for being a Lakers fan that was willing to talk about the Kings. I think it's only fair, you know, reciprocity, but
1: still got to appreciate it. Sure, sure. Hey, I'm I'm always game to talk about any NBA team, so I, I appreciate you having me on, my friend.
0: All right, and I will be sure to have you back on again. Well, he is Nathan Smith. You can find him on Twitter at NBA. You can find his work on the hashtag basketball website, and you can find a lot of DFS information on his Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. My written work is also on the hashtag basketball website, and hopefully that piece about the Kings cornering the market comes into play with this upcoming trade deadline approaching. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. Five stars, most appreciated. If you don't want to give us five stars, please let me know why. Or even if you do want to give me five stars, please let me know why. Either reach out to me via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. Feedback is always appreciated. And also, as always, thanks so much for listening.